hey, this is Ed. So this is a podcast, is that right? This is. Okay. We're officially podcasting right now. That's awesome. This is Straight from the Cutter's Mouth. Welcome to Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, a retina podcast at least once a week. We aim to bring you insights and perspectives from the world of vitreoretinal surgery. I am your host, Dr. Jay Schreeder. Today on episode 187, I have the pleasure of being joined by two of my retina colleagues for a journal club. Uh, we're going to be discussing a few different articles published in major ophthalmology journals, uh, discussing gender differences in case volume among ophthalmology residents, uh, the association of uh, disclosure of resident roles with uh, informed consent for patients in a private practice setting, uh, cost analysis of veretagene, also known as trait, uh, brand name Luxterna, and then surgical errors in ophthalmology. Um, and we'll have links to all these articles in the episode description, so you can go and read the articles after you hear this. Um, remember that a list of financial disclosures will be attached in the episode description. And if you can claim CME credits via the AOF website for this and other episodes by clicking the link in the episode description. And um, also remember that um, we have uh, our website online and you can find all 186 previous episodes there. So joining me right now on the phone line in alphabetical order, first we have Dr. Sriji Patel from Vanderbilt University. Sriji, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Jay. And um, in her first time in a while, Dr. Priya Sharma Vakaria from Retina Group of Washington. Uh, Priya, welcome back. I know you've been traveling, and uh, welcome back to the United States, and congratulations again. I know you just got married uh, in the last uh, month or two, so congrats. Thanks so much, Jay. So, uh, as usual, we're going to do a journal club, so we're going to go through these articles. I'm going to start with the first article, which has been really hot on social media, and people have been talking about it, um, which is a study done, which is called Association of uh, Preoperative... Oh, I'm going to I'm gonna skip that, actually. We're going to swing over and come back to that. Um, False alarm. We're going to do, first article we're going to do is gender differences in case volume among ophthalmology residents by Gong et al. This was published in JAMA Ophthalmology um, on July 18, 2019. Uh, and essentially, what they did, they collected information uh, from 24 programs for a time period from July 2005 to June 2017 of resident uh, case logs, which are self-reported on their cases done during residency, cataract surgery, and other surgeries. And they analyzed this data and looked at various factors, including the total number of procedures, volume of cataract surgery, which is always a hot number that applicants and people use to kind of evaluate programs, and then looked at differences between gender, maternity or paternity leave status. And the, the biggest kind of takeaways were that female residents performed fewer cataract surgeries and fewer total procedures compared to male counterparts for cataracts, it was eight to about 22 uh, surgeries. Um, and that there was no differences in women who took maternity leave. Men who took paternity leave were actually more likely to have more surgeries than their male counterparts. And um, the number of procedures overall had been increasing over that time period. Uh, again, this is a small number of programs, but still this has caused a really a lot of discussion about what this data means and what come up with the kind of implications for resident training. So, um, Sriji, I'll start with you. You know, you're at Vanderbilt um, and you uh, did some of your training there and you worked very closely with trainees. When you first heard of this article and read it, uh, what were kind of the first takeaways before we start breaking down you know, the actual methodology and limitations? So when I first heard about this article, um, you know, unfortunately, I, uh, it didn't surprise me. I feel like in lots of fields in medicine, you know, especially lately, we've been finding out um, as more and more numbers have been coming out about various inequalities and gender differences, you know, 
and salary or some or you know uh, measurement of performance metrics or even something like this where it's um, uh, you know numbers in terms of output um, and so you know unfortunately I wasn't too surprised um, the, the authors point out that you know there are you know a smaller number of programs here and in the beginning and end of the time period that they studied these uh, programs the numbers actually did seem to come together a bit which was um, a little bit um, at least heartening uh, but there was you know a solid 10-year gap there with consistently you know male uh, residents were doing more both cataract surgeries and procedures than their female counterparts so it's certainly discouraging when you see a, a consistent trend like that Priya, how, what are your thoughts when you think about this study and, and what it means? And then talk a little bit about what you thought about the methodology and, and kind of how the study was constructed. So I think uh, one thing to keep in mind in this study, which is what Shruji pointed out, is that this was only 24 of 119 programs. So one thing to keep in mind is that it would be interesting to see what the other 80% of programs have in terms of case volume. Um, and otherwise, this is completely retrospective. It is, you know, basically the way that the study was structured was the study team reached out to program directors and got case logs of residents from 2005 to 2017, analyzed the case volume in those case logs, and then had the program directors fill out uh, a form that basically described uh, the differences in maternity and paternity leaves in their residence during that time and a few other factors. And so all of the data here, uh, it's important to realize, can be subjective to some recall bias. And another important thing to kind of realize in the way that this was kind of structured is there's this is all retrospective and, and um, people can kind of log things differently. But otherwise, I thought that it's, it's a very good study to do to uh, shine light on, on a potential issue, as Sriji said. Um, Given its retrospective nature, though, that's that's something to keep in mind. Yeah, I, I, that's really again. I, I think this, having tried to do similar types of studies looking at education, I think it's always super difficult because they're retrospective. Every program is a little bit different. The data can be really messy to look at. So I really think they have to be commended for getting such a large amount of data. And when you send out these surveys to, to different directors, and I've done this for other things I've tried to work on, you know, twenty-four it seems like a low number. That's a pretty good yield to get all the information you need. Uh, even though we all like to work together, people are busy, and it's really hard to get all that information um, de-identified and, and, and to a place where it can be analyzed. And this is a long time period, as you mentioned. I, again, the biggest weakness in my, my perspective, I do think this is important to bring up, as Sriji said, because we've seen these discrepancies. But, you know, I wonder, I, I, my biggest problem, and I think there's a little, few limitations, is, is what Priya you just referenced, which is that it's self-reported, right? And so my instinctive gut, and then I had to go and look up and see if this would be true, was... I just think that sometimes, unfortunately, male residents, doctors, or just men in life are more likely to overemphasize what they've done, uh, or embellish, or or round up, or and women may sometimes be more uh, accurate in terms of you know I only did half of that case or some of that case, and they may log that as an assisted case rather than a primary case, for example, and that maybe that's my own bias. So then I went hunting for some data to support that in preparation for this podcast, and. You know, there's not really a lot of data in the medical literature about this because it's hard to know about that sort of thing. But we do know that um, it, there's a few studies that looked at just men and women in general. And most of the, there's a, there was a big study published and described in Forbes um, and 
there was a, a study published called The Truth About Lies in the Workplace, and they kind of looked at men and women. And they found that men and women didn't really lie at different rates, but they lied about different things. You know, men tend to tell lies that are self-serving, meaning that they benefit them. They exaggerate their accomplishments. They would do this to, you know, sometimes compliment someone else, but compliment people at the same time. Whereas women tend to, to minimize certain things uh, in order to sometimes avoid attention. Maybe part of that is unfortunately the environments that are created in workplaces and kind of the societal things that have been created. So this is like a huge other conversation, but I just wonder that there's been a lot of conversation about how as attendings, we need to do a better job of, of getting our women cases. And I think that's absolutely true. That should always be our priority to have equal distribution of cases. Maybe I'm naive. I just haven't seen that necessarily that, that that's different in terms of what I've seen. And maybe I'd have to look at our, our data. Our data wasn't included in the study here, but I, I just don't know uh, how much of this is just reporting. And, and it's a small enough amount of cases that reporting can play a huge, huge role. So I, I completely agree. And one thing I was really surprised about here that I wasn't anticipating when I before I read this was that there was no difference in the female residents who took maternity leave right. versus those that didn't. And and I think that really has to be evaluated as, as to, you know, what is it in this study that made the big difference between the case volume? Mm-hmm. Um, because if there really is a difference, then I, I do think individual programs need to look at that and and assess what the difference is. Is it with certain attendings? Are there certain attendings that skew more one direction versus the other? Or are there certain types of cases? Um, and I do think that if if there really is a difference, it should be evaluated. Um, but the problem is that it, it's not entirely clear right now. Um, and Sriji, I'll get your thoughts yeah. in one second, but, but the one thing I'll add on top of that is what was super surprising, maybe this is just noise, but the men who took leave had more cases than the men who didn't take leave, which is also surprising. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, I agree. I actually think, um, to your point, Jay, that might help explain why, paradoxically, the men that uh, ended up taking paternity leave had uh, more cases. You know, you wonder if there was either some embellishing or some, you know, aggressive note-keeping Mm-hmm. Uh, that contributed because they were to that concerned trend. and they and they overcompensate. Um, sure, and you know, part of you know just having this conversation, we can see that there's a lot of conjecture and hypothesizing as we interpret this data, and that really gives us this idea that you know this study is a good start, but it certainly probably is just the the tip of the iceberg in terms of really understanding um, and getting a better idea about how resident uh, distribution of cases occurs. You know, and speaking of this as a start, I think that the most powerful way to do this, and I feel like this data would be available to the ACGME, is you you just, you they have the data from all the programs and they can separate it by gender pretty easily. It'd be interesting to just, you know, it's all anonymous data. It would kind of be interesting to see what the actual real data is for every, every place. And that data exists somewhere. Um, I just don't know who has access to it. And And one of the other things that I think would be interesting to look at is, at what point in training did these residents take uh, paternity or maternity leave? Uh, because in every program, the surgically heavy years are different. Um, and so that perhaps that somehow is altering the results as well. And then what's the duration of maternity and paternity leave? Uh, you know, some programs provide a lot more paternity leave than others. Uh, same thing with maternity leave um, in terms of um, having to make up time later on at the end of residency. 
And so that's also something that I don't know if that data was necessarily captured. Mm -hmm. Those are great points. Trudy, what were you going to say? You know, I was just going to say, um, I agree with um, kind of what we've said about um, just trying to get a little bit better idea about the data. You know, it really only was the, is the data from 24 sites. And if you look at the, just if you look at cataract numbers, the standard deviation, we're talking about, you know, 160, 170 um, cataracts plus or minus 60 in terms of the standard deviation. So there really is a lot of variation that's coming through. Um, and that, again, affects um, what we're seeing. You know, I'd be interested to see if there's any skewing here based on one or a few programs that might have um, just kind of aberrations in the data that are shifting things. Because, again, this is over, you know, a long period where they're studying these numbers. You know, the, the last thing, and those are all really, really good points. I was going to bring up the idea of different, every program is a little different in terms of culture and how important the numbers are, right? So if you're at a program where, you know, you, the availability of cases isn't as much, um, then those extra 15 or 20 cataracts really, really may matter to individually as a resident. And every program is a little different from that standpoint. I think that you can schedule your maternity or paternity leave on rotations, for example, where you're not as surgery heavy or even maybe you're not even operating. Some people are really good. I've seen just anecdotally, some people are really, really good about kind of timing things. So they work their rotations around and do things to kind of avoid the, the situation where they're losing cases. Um, and then I think different people just have different amounts of, of motivation to kind of chase those cases. And I don't know if there are gender differences that way. Well, as well, we don't know how much in the end, those eight to 20, and again, you referenced the standard deviations, how much do those cases actually finally matter to how good you are as a surgeon? Obviously, we always want to do as many cases as we are possible in training, but I'll give an example. You know, I remember as a resident, sometimes we'd have you know, cancellations and you know, you'd book an X amount of cases for a day and a couple would cancel. And I was maybe more in the passive or philosophical side where I was like, you know, like, you know, I have enough cases. I'm not necessarily going to, to hunt down extra cases. And there are people who they have cancellations the day before their day. They would go out and recruit and really be aggressive to try to fill those spots. Uh, and that's their prerogative. But I'm just saying that different people kind of can are wired differently. And, and I don't know if that there are some gender differences there, too. Maybe there are just some men who are outliers who are just more likely to do that. Maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that has nothing. Maybe there it's kind of equality in terms of men and women. But I just don't know maybe, again, how much those extra cases are adding because you don't know about the complexity of those cases. You don't know which cases are actually the differences if we're assuming the original assumption that this data is actually accurate when it's self-reported. Yeah, correct. Um, you know, all in all, I am glad that the study is done. And, and I think the next steps from here would be hopefully with all of the publicity around the study, each program will look at their own individual data and see if, if it's a program within their own, or, I'm sorry, a problem within their own institution and, um, you know, address it if so. But I'm hoping that it's, it's not. I'm hoping that there's just a lot of outliers here and that this isn't a true problem. Um, but I'm glad that the study team even looked at this. Um, so this was, you know, definitely to commend them for their hard work on this. This was a great paper and something that, I think um, is very important to look at. Well, moving forward to our, to our next project uh, and paper, which um, is a near and dear to all of our hearts, especially Bria and I, uh, was this published publication in JAMA Ophthalmology Association of Preoperative Disclosure of Resident Roles with Informed Consent for Cataract Surgery in a Teaching Program by Corin et al. 
Alex Levin was the senior author and on this paper from Will's Eye Hospital. And again, I'll just briefly describe and then we can talk about it. They essentially just looked at a standardized kind of um, analysis of disclosure of residence roles in cataract surgery by a single surgeon in his private practice. This is Dr. Bruce Markowitz, who has been well known at Will's, one of the best resident teachers for cataract surgery and staffing for many, many years. And basically this was to capture that kind of consent process in a standardized way to capture how many patients after receiving the disclosure actually went on to agree to have resident uh, participation and also to analyze that actual videotaped consent conversation to, to kind of figure out what were the reasons people either agreed to do it or decided to decline. Um, and again, they recruited, again, this is 96 patients, not easy to do this in terms of capturing this and doing this in a standardized fashion. And about uh, 56% of these patients actually, after the end of the conversation would agree to resident involvements. There were no differences in kind of demographic characteristics and who agreed, including race, uh, including gender. Uh, and then the biggest, I think the most important thing was kind of the reasons people cited they agreed. So the reasons people agreed included they had confidence in, in the, the surgeon. In this case, it was Dr. Markovitz. Um, the reasons they agreed included they felt like there was an honest kind of process describing this. Um, a few described they, they believed it was better, you know, to kind of give back and contribute to future physician education. Uh, and then the biggest reasons people declined are the ones we would expect. People were, were afraid uh, of putting their eyes in the trainee's hands, and some people were afraid doing it in someone they had not met, and they really only had trust in the person they had met. So, Priya, I'll let you kick this off. Um, first of all, your kind of initial impressions of the study, and then kind of the, the big take-home points you take as someone now um, who thinks about education and how we're going to uh, improve it. Uh, I think disclosure is always a tricky subject when it comes to trainee um, uh, kind of education. And this study went a long way towards showing that maybe it can be achieved and it should be achieved, whereas there's a big fear maybe in the medical community not to do it because we're afraid people just won't agree to have a resident involved. Yeah, absolutely. My first impression when I read this study was that this was definitely not easy to do. And, um, you know, we all have this inherent fear, as you said, of talking to a patient about having a trainee do surgery. And I was just a trainee and, and I know how important it was to my attendings to have me do surgery, but also how much they valued their patient physician relationship. And, you know, you never want to do anything to jeopardize your patient's trust in you or your, or their trust in the surgery that you're trying to do and how you're trying to help them. And so I thought this, entire study was excellent in proving that patients can know about trainee involvement in their surgery and still have confidence in their surgeon. And in fact, many of them reported that they had more confidence in their surgeon after this disclosure was done, which I thought that was just incredible. Um, and uh, so that was my, the main impression here was that this was a, a big step towards being more transparent with patients, which I think the entire medical community is, is just moving towards increased transparency with patients and having them have much more of a role in their care. Um, the, uh, the way that the study was structured was also really well done. It was a single surgeon, uh, consecutive patients at a single private practice setting. And so these are patients who are not really expecting resident involvement, they're expecting the attending to do their surgery. And so it's not similar patients that they mentioned later in the study who are uh, perhaps resident patients in the clinic, 
who are used to only seeing residents and different residents every time. These are patients who are very accustomed to seeing this one attending surgeon who then does a very thorough informed consent with them, completely describing what a resident is, how much training they've done, and then asking for their consent. And, um, you know, one of the things the study does not look at is, is outcomes of surgery, which is not what their intention was. Their intention was to look at truly the consent process and what a patient's perception of having this consent where they're attending is. And then the interviews after the fact were also very helpful to have them reflect on the whole process and whether it uh, added more fear, as you said, or whether it just gave them more trust. That was really, really well stated. Um, Shriji, uh, you just want to reference again, following up on what Priya said, and then just talk about limitations and adding on what you kind of referenced. Yeah, I thought uh, that was a great summary um, by Priya. I the first the thing that came to my mind when I saw the study is just um, you know commending the the physicians that, that undertook this study, um, especially the surgeon that opened up his private practice, um, because this is a two thing, you know. It's um, something that we battle with basically every case in terms of, you know, kind of um, balancing uh, between the two ends. You know, obviously, you know, we're at the, we're all at teaching um, uh, institutions and kind of balancing between, um, you know, wanting to get cases for your resident or fellow, but, you know, obviously being fully honest with your patients. And so I, I want to commend the uh, doctors for doing this. Um, I thought that, really you can see just how much patients are willing to participate in something like this, assuming that they have that relationship with their primary physician, their, their, the trust. And, you know, I see that on a daily basis with my fellows, you know, as long as patients trust me, you know, I tell them, you know, I do all the critical portions and sometimes that critical portion is understanding what my fellow can do and um, making sure that I don't let them do anything that I know they can't do. And as long as my patients trust me, they trust that they're in good hands and that they, they understand that fellows are involved. Um, so I thought, you know, overall, this was a great study. It really sheds a lot of light on just, you know, how lucky we are uh, in this profession in terms of how lucky we are because of our patients. Um, I thought the study was very well done. You know, they, he, he, he talks about how it added, it was about five minutes of a consent process, which doesn't seem like a lot, but, you know, depending on your cataract surgery volume, I'm sure that actually is probably near the top end for a lot of physicians in terms of how much time they're spending consenting patients. Um, you know, overall, I thought it was a very well done study. You know, the only thing, um, it was limited to one institution and one physician. So you wonder if it's applicable anywhere else or even in other surgical settings, like if we're talking about vitrectomy surgery or glaucoma surgery. Uh, but this is really a good start in terms of getting a little bit more um, disclosure on the subject. Yeah, I mean, that's a great, great, you know, analysis of kind of limitations. Again, I think this is a really different, we all said this, this is a difficult study to pull off. I mean, I look at that, I look, I really fixate on that 56% number because I don't think that 56% number is absolutely important and it being absolutely correct. But I think, as you said, it's a good starting point. I think the things in this study that could have artificially inflated it is that Dr. Markovitz is an amazing clinician, an amazing human being. And he's just, like they mentioned, he's just really, really charismatic. And, and I think that, his patients have a long relationship. I think they reference some of the examples of patients who've had him for 10 or 20 years. And that changes kind of the, you know, the, the relationship. If you were just meeting a patient for the first time and you don't have that necessarily that same degree of physician patient rapport, 
then that completely changes the conversation. On the other hand, I think that one of the patients referenced that they had not met the resident surgeon. You can argue in programs where the resident is more closely involved in consenting the patient for surgery and kind of their preoperative and postoperative care that the patient may be more comfortable with them involved. And I've seen examples even this week. I had a patient on Thursday um, who the fellow was actually the first person to meet the patient and the fellow helped us sign up. And then we get to the operating room and um, we roll in and um, this is a pediatric patient and the parents there. And they immediately recognized him as the provider. You know, they were happy to meet me too, but there, that relationship existed. And, you know, if there was kind of that faith that, that this person is going to be involved because they had created that positive relationship already. And so I think that number could potentially be even higher. I think they're referencing if this would be the example of your a private practice patient being passed to a fellow resident who has not ever met the patient before. But I think in scenarios where the resident or fellow has created a physician-patient bond, it's probably much, much higher to have that discussion. And, and I think it is higher because we see that you know in our own institutions and in our own training in the past that we were able to to you know do a lot of cases because patients gave us that that privilege and and you know they generally had good outcomes because the, the supervision and kind of the the balance between supervision and autonomy was sufficient to get good outcomes while letting us continue to grow our base of, of good surgeons that take care of patients out in the community now Priya, any other thoughts that to add on this paper so, like you said, I, I was not remotely surprised that Dr. Markovitz was, you know, obviously an expert consenter here. Just knowing him and having operated with him, um, I was not even shocked that so many patients had trust in him. Uh, I will say that I did read the consent form, and I, they do really do a great job of describing what a resident is. But as Shriji said, it takes a long time. When you go through that consent form that they used for the study, they do describe how a resident uh, completed medical school, completed their USMLE step exams, a full year of internship, uh, residency, they've done cases, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that whole process does take a really long time. Um, and especially it'll take even longer if it's not a cataract surgery, if we extrapolate this to vitrectomy surgery. And you're already, you know, describing uh, gas precautions and positioning and, uh, you know, other things like secondary cataract and, and things like that. Having tagging this along to that can completely change, um, you know, your entire discussion and, and you, you start running out of time, as, as Shruti mentioned. But um, I do I, I think the study was, you know, very well done. And um, again, just highlights that patients are expecting more transparency and that they can be okay with this. Um, this is, you know, the population of patients in this study is um, something that also you have to see if you can extrapolate to other areas. Um, I think that that's the biggest limitation of this study is that it may not be generalizable to all centers in all cities, but um, is definitely a, a great study to kind of get this started. Well, Moving forward, Shriji, you're going to tell us a little bit about this next paper, which is Cost Effectiveness of Veretagine Neparvovic Rizil versus Standard Care for RP65 Mediated Inherited Retinal Disease by Johnson et al. published in JAMA Ophthalmology Online on July 18th. Uh, and please forgive my pronunciation of that word. I will not try to say it again because when I see an RZ and a Y together, my brain just glazes over. Uh, yeah, um, I'm not going to even attempt to say that, uh, the second part of that drug name. Uh, so this was a um, cost-effective analysis, basically looking at 
um, viridogene, which, you know, we all know was the first gene therapy approved by the FDA um, for treating RPE60 in all of medicine and specifically treating RPE65 mediated inherited retinal diseases. Um, this was, uh, this approval came based on, you know, a phase three data um, on the subject. And so essentially what the authors are doing here is they did an economic analysis looking at standard of care and natural history um, data on RPE65 mediated inherited retinal diseases, and then comparing that to the cost effectiveness of the vertigine therapy. Um, just for some background, you know, the medication itself um, costs $425,000 per eye, and then the other direct costs that the authors assume are about $5,000 for the actual, you know, vitrectomy surgery and hospital costs. What they found was, assuming those direct costs um, and assuming some level of effectiveness after the initial three-year period, retigene remains um, cost-effective compared to standard of care uh, using a lifetime horizon. They kind of use a variable cost per quality. So the 150000 is um, a pretty standard uh, cost uh, per quality adjusted life year. Uh, the authors argue that that might be different for a rare inherited retinal disease, such as, you know, RP65 mediated inherited retinal diseases, but they actually do sensitivity analyses where they look at varying um, effect um, effectiveness after the three years. And what they find is that even if the gene remains 8.8% effective after the initial three years, the um, medicine is still cost effective when compared to standard of care. Um, and that's if they don't include the indirect costs associated with the uh, vision loss. But that gives us a great idea about, even though there's still some question about the long-term effects of this medication and how much it's going to help with things like, you know, night blindness and visual field, we know that even um, with limited long-term effectivity, this medicine still remains um, cost-effective despite its fairly high initial uh, cost. Priya, to follow on Shriji's excellent analysis, kind of your takeaways from the study and um, then kind of the implications it may have also for maybe coverage of these drugs as we go forward in the future. Uh, yeah, so that was an excellent summary by Shriji. I think that um, the implications of this and, and you know the benefit of this is the whole medical community now is moving towards more cost-effective care uh, looking at things, you know, even when it comes to intravitreal injections for AMD and DME, you know, doing these tiers of coverage to, to do the lower cost uh, therapies first before climbing up to more expensive therapies. And, you know, the, the biggest benefit of this is it shows that even though there's a very, very high initial cost, that the benefit of this to the healthcare community is, un, you know, indisputable. Uh, at least at this three-year mark, as long as you have that long-term treatment effect. And, you know, Veretagine and Parbovec is a viral vector. So the thought and the theory is that this should last, you know, potentially longer than three years if it continues to be expressed. Um, and, and if so, then there's no doubt that it's not cost-effective. And the biggest benefit of this is to help patients get coverage, Right, because if an insurance company says that there's way too high of an initial cost and they're not going to cover it, and you show them this, and hopefully, you know, show that this can be more cost effective than doing nothing, then perhaps this will obtain coverage for a lot of our patients. 
Yeah, and I completely agree. I think that, again, my, my biggest take home was what you just said, was that this is super important for payers and the government to see. Very, very difficult to capture the impact of a drug that's $425,000 per eye. But when it can take someone from a lifetime of not being visually functional to potentially having function, the burden on themselves, their caregivers, taking out all the psychological benefits and the life-changing benefits, humanitarian benefits of the drug, even if you're a complete government pragmatist sitting and looking at this, this is super important analysis to kind of show that. And so that's a really, really nicely done study and really commendable. Um, in the interest of time, we're going to slide to our last paper here, which was from ophthalmology called Surgical Confusions in Ophthalmology, Description Analysis and Prevention of Errors from 2006-2017 by Ravi Parikh and colleagues, uh, posted online in July uh, 2019. Uh, Priya, you want to tell us just a little bit about this article and kind of the results and implications? Yeah, absolutely. So this is a retrospective cohort study where the study team looked at 143 cases of surgical confusions. Their data was uh, obtained from the OMIC database of closed case files and then from uh, the New York, Stealth, New York State Health Department and uh, Patient Occurrence Reporting and Tracking System. And uh, this was done between uh, 2006 and t- 2017, I believe. And the reason that's important is that this time period is after the universal protocol or the timeout protocol was largely established and uh, used in pretty much every single ophthalmology OR. And so again, they looked at 143 cases of surgical confusions and and what they're primarily looking at is the reason for these surgical errors and whether or not a universal protocol could have prevented it. And they found that out of these 143 cases, 92 of them could have been preventable by a proper universal protocol or a proper timeout. Uh, And they found that out of all the 143 cases, 95 or two-thirds of them were actually wrong intraocular lens implants during cataract surgery. And most surprisingly, out of those 95 cases, 34% were not found to be preventable by a universal timeout. The reason for this being that they attributed it to upstream errors that were done during the time of choosing the lens in the office. Perhaps the wrong eye was looked at or perhaps uh, there was a transcription error. Uh, they had a whole variety of other uh, surgical errors here, such as wrong eye blocks, uh, wrong refractive surgery measurements. And one of the things that they looked at here, which I thought was really helpful, was they looked at the severity of the injury on a grade of one to four. And uh, as pertinent to vitreoretinal surgeons, um, the grade four errors were found to largely be errors in intraocular gas concentration. Uh, These were found to be completely vision-threatening, and oftentimes these patients had uh, blindness, and these resulted in the largest uh, payouts to the patients. And so uh, there's a couple of benefits of this. One is just looking at all of the errors in this time period to say, can a timeout have, would a timeout have prevented this and or would a correct lens measurement have prevented this? And then also, one of the things the study team does here is they suggest uh, different things, such as an intraoperative hard stop before intraocul- intraocular gas um, dilution or before any type of medication injection to ensure that there are not intraoperative errors happening during surgery. Sriji, I don't have a ton to add to what Priya said, just maybe a couple thoughts, but your kind of thoughts on her description of the results and um, your overall takeaways from this paper? 
Yeah, that was a great uh, summation of the of the study. Uh, um, honestly, uh, my the this kind of reinforces some of the things that I do in the OR. Um, I'm, you know, I, the the timeout is you know can be grueling, especially when you're just trying to move through a long day. Um, but I try and tell the fellows, you know, there are critical times during surgery when you want to slow down, um, and one of them is a timeout. One of them is typically when you're drawing up gas, you know, those are the types of things when you really want to make sure that you kind of dot your I's and cross your T's and effective communication and kind of getting all on the same page at reasonable times during the surgery and before the surgery. These are small things. They really only add a few minutes cumulatively throughout the day. But as you can see here, they can have significant effects both in terms of litigation, but obviously also on patient outcomes. And so, you know, I try and instill this um, in the operating room. You know, I try and create this environment where no one needs to necessarily be afraid to speak up if they think something is wrong or something is out of place. And there are definitely times when we all just need to kind of pay attention to what's going on in the timeout. It's certainly one of them. Yeah, I completely agree. And I'll add on, I, I thought it was really interesting, and even in the case of IOLs, that Spria mentioned that a lot of it was pre-timeout kind of errors. Um, one of the things I try to force myself to do, and I, it, again, we, we referenced earlier, it's tough in clinic, you're doing consent, you're running around, but I try to, if I'm taking anyone to surgery, kind of write out my plan a little bit without being too, too specific, just kind of write for myself a few notes so I know exactly what we're doing. Um, and then I write notes for myself, you know, going into the case and I go over with the fellow so the fellow gets comfortable kind of knowing the plan. And that's also for myself to kind of read because you're in a busy surgery day. There's a lot going on. Um, there's a lot of moving parts. The timeout captures a ton. It doesn't capture everything. And, and it shouldn't. It doesn't. It shouldn't become onerous. There's a lot of other things you have to think about. You know, what your goals were for the cataract surgery will play a role in the lens you pick, which eye the calcs were done in, what the refractive goal is based on the other eye. Um, and it's interesting, like they referenced, that there's a pretty significant in legal indemnity and implication for putting a wrong lens in, even though you can easily switch it and there's not permanent harm, it does tell us that that's seen as acceptable, unacceptable, as they said, by the public, and, and maybe it should be. But it, it unfortunately, the good news is it happens rarely, as they referenced, the, the overall rate of errors is very, very low, but it is kind of sobering and tells us that we still just, like you said, always have to take time in certain moments. And I think the most important time is probably before surgery, just either the day before or going into the day, just kind of knowing exactly what you're doing for each case is super, super important because as crazy as it might be, once the day starts and you're moving around, um, there are things that can be missed and you just don't want that ever to happen to one of your patients. Yeah. I was just going to say, I think that's a great point, you know, especially when you're on your, you know, last couple of cases of the day, having a good plan really, pays uh, dividends or if you have add-ons and you're just your mind you can spin very quickly and so having a plan and having an idea beforehand really does help out and one of the things i'll mention too that the study team mentioned is that it's actually surprising that there are not more clinic-based procedures that were reported in here because the databases looked at those as well and you know perhaps that's because the things that we're doing in clinic are not as high risk uh, that's something that they mentioned, um, and a lot of our patients that we're doing intravitreal injections on have bilateral disease, but not only in the OR, but in clinic, we need to be incredibly careful about ensuring that we're doing the correct eye, um, perhaps adopting sort of a timeout procedure in clinic, too, for all of the procedures that we do there, because, you know, it really only takes one error um, and one patient 
to to really you know impact a lot and and it's it's worth it to make sure that all of our patients are getting excellent care well Sriji patel priya sharma thank you so much for joining me tonight i won't reference what day of the week it is because it will be depressing for our listeners and may reflect poorly on all of us but uh thank you for your time and for doing this it's been super super informative and uh, hopefully I'll get to see you soon, if not at Academy, at another meeting. Thanks, Jay. All right, Jay. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, guys. As always, you can find this episode and all prior episodes on our website, retinapodcast.com. That's R-E-T-I-N-A podcast.com. All 187 episodes, including this one, can be found there sorted by category. You'll also find our blog, Equal Round and Reactive Lessons from Our Pupils. Remember, you can now claim CME credits for select podcast episodes via the AAO website. Simply log in as a member on the website and visit the link in the episode description. On our website, you can sign up for a mailing list to get updates on the most recent episodes. At the bottom are links to subscribe in the Apple Podcast and Android stores. You can also like our Facebook page or find us directly in the Apple Podcast store or Android score on your mobile. We're on Twitter at Retina Podcast and to contact us, click on the contact us link on our website or email us at retinapodcast at gmail.com. We love getting feedback. Feedback helps us improve for the future and let us know what we're doing well, what we can do better. We also appreciate the people who have left positive reviews in the Apple Store and Android Store. Many thanks to Drs. Priya Sharma and Sriji Patel for joining me. Thanks to Dr. Louis Kai, Dr. Angela Chang, and Dr. Michael Benincasa for preparing this episode. Listeners, thank you for what you do on a daily basis, the patient care you provide, and the articles you read and publish. You inspire the conversations on this podcast each week. This is Jay Schreeder signing off. The feeling. This is straight from the cutter's mouth. <laughs>